2: this series contains strong language and descriptions of brutality and violence.
3: Destruction and devastation, street
4: after street, building after building.
3: The situation in Syria, of course, is very grave and is deteriorating. More than 30,000 people have now Died, hundreds of thousands are refugees.
1: Two bombs exploded with devastating effect. The opposition accuses the regime of staging such attacks. Others accuse Islamist radicals. Car bombs and suicide bombs are now a regular occurrence. I would like to see President Assad face full international justice for the appalling crimes that he has meted out on his people.
3: Around the country, the regime's uh, bases of power are being uh, whittled away. The rebels seem to be relentlessly moving in uh, around both those big cities. Aleppo has got uh, large areas where the rebels are actually in control of parts of the city.
2: In the autumn of 2012, as the war raged in Syria, John Cantley went back to Aleppo to report on how the rebels and the Free Syrian Army were fighting back against the Assad regime.
3: So, this was the 19th of November 2012.
2: Wherever John went on reporting trips, there was at least one friend he would be in regular contact with. And this trip was no different.
3: Kev, I'm not going to ask you any longer because it's starting to bore me. I'm here until the 25th, so likely we'll be over by the time you get here because you're a coward. Kev, or Kevin Godlington, is a former
2: Special Forces soldier and a good friend of John Cantley's.
3: Heavy shelling today in town, 120mm shells, 130mm mortars, 500 pound bombs and SPG-9s all day. Good times, but hard to get decent pictures, as the rebels spend most of their time huddling. Hurry up and get here. Best, Jay.
2: The messages he's reading from inside Syria in November 2012 were amongst the last emails that John Cantley sent.
3: So, on the 20th, he says, Hi, Kev. Just so you know, I've just come out of Aleppo. I'm back in Turkey overnight before I head back into Syria. This time, I will be further south in Idlib. Jump on a plane to Hatay and join us in the next few days. It'd be good to have you along. You promised me you'd come. So, this was the email I showed to my wife and said, should I just go for a couple of days just to make sure the idiot doesn't get caught or in any trouble going over the border? To which she said, no. And he was kidnapped two days later. Yep. Had I gone, I'd have been almost certainly caught with him and and James Foley and would have been the first to have almost certainly been killed. So in the Black Gallows humour of circumstance, the tragedy, of course, is that those things did happen. Mm. But I I escaped because my wife saw my communications with John and um, stopped it dead in its tracks
2: That was the last message that Kevin ever received from John Cantley.
3: The next email I get is when his tracker clearly was lit up and the email came through two days after he was captured. Presumably when his captors took his passwords off him and logged into his email, and that's when I was alerted. But we now know he'd already been taken hostage two days prior. Last time, on Last Man
2: Standing, we heard how the British journalist, John Cantley, had been kidnapped in Syria before, back in the summer of 2012.
3: We were effectively, unbeknownst to us, or our guide delivered part and parcel into the hands of jihadists. It was like, go, John, go, because at least if one of us made across the border, we could raise the alarm. I was then shot in the arm.
2: John was eventually rescued but not before he'd had the chance to consider just how badly things could go wrong.
3: There were times when I actually thought, what does it feel like when when you're shot in the back of the head, you know, when you're kneeling and blindfolded, you know, is there pain? Does it just go dark?
2: And yet, within weeks of returning to Britain, and while still nursing a bullet wound to his arm, John took an extraordinary decision. He decided to go back to Syria.
3: I don't really know how to do anything else, you know, it's always the first question. I mean, of course, I've got to get his hand sorted, but yes, absolutely the people, the Syrian people are amazing.
2: What made him do that? Why would anyone who'd almost died go back to the same place to face the same dangers? And how did he end up getting kidnapped all over again? I'm Manveen Rana. And I'm joining the veteran war correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, in this special series based on his long running investigation to find out what happened to John Cantley. You're listening to Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times, Episode 2 The Kidnap.
3: Kevin Godlington first met John Cantley. Via a expeditionary trip to the Himalayas where we took disabled veterans in motorbikes, sidecars and Jeeps up to the highest point that the road will allow. In his book about the trip, John Cantley
2: describes Kev as an ex-Special Forces soldier who spoke quicker than a race commentator and got bored within eight seconds. He was ferociously bright and ferociously angry if you robbed him the wrong way. And he never spoke of what he'd seen or where he'd been. But you knew from his background it wouldn't have been
3: good. He and I hit it off immediately and found kindred spirits in travel adventure and the fact that he was a complete lunatic. He had loads of fiery tales about Daring Do, and I suppose I had a few as well from soldiering. And... Me being quite a prickly person as well, I don't suffer fools and, and nor does John, but we never had a cross word yet. I had a crossword with maybe 20 people there and he also. Um, he would always go too fast on the bike, take risks and do things that upset some of the leadership because he's a risk taker by nature and wants to push the boundaries and see more and do more. So we got on very well because we had a pretty like-minded attitude to life. They got on so well that John would keep trying to persuade Kev to come and join him
2: wherever he was on assignment, in places like Afghanistan and
3: Mogadishu. He would usually start by reminding me how boring my life is, um, (laughs) how pathetic I've become since leaving the military, and how my business life is no longer exciting or sexy enough and that I should revisit my manhood and get on a plane and come and meet him immediately.
5: (laughs) Were you tempted?
3: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but the problem is I have a very, very strict wife. John
2: was constantly in touch with Kev when he was in Syria, particularly after
3: that first kidnapping. He got back to the UK and then a day later was round at my house with his arm bandaged up, shouting very loudly about how he's going back almost immediately. Really, immediately? He was just, yeah, committed to completing his mission and, finishing the work he was doing the problem is he couldn't understand the different types of risk that were at play when you're dealing with you know a death cult like isis um he wasn't aware just how difficult it was going to be for him until he got caught that first time round. and the problem with john is that he then didn't learn from it because you get to the point where you think that you're almost bulletproof right
2: Do you think he did? Do you think he'd sort of been to so many dangerous places and.
3: Yeah, it desensitizes you. I mean, firstly, you're dealing with a man who's very brave. He is very brave by default, so he has a hero masculine side to him. The second is that he'd become somewhat delusional because he'd got away with it so much.
2: But Kev did understand the risks. He even contacted some of his ex special forces friends and set up training for John in a field to try and prepare him for the risks he'd face if he went back to Syria.
3: I was very worried about him going back and tried to talk him out of it. But he convinced his friends that he'd fixed all of the problems, this was all going to be okay. he was going to go and get this huge scoop and rendezvous with people who he was never so clear, really, or specific about whom, but he had definite business to attend to. And that business was to continue getting access to the front line. The world's media weren't there because it was so dangerous. So he was at the tip of the spear and he knew that.
2: And he convinced his friends that he'd fix the problems and this time it would be absolutely fine.
3: Did you buy that? No, I don't buy it because I understand the implied risk, but that is what John can do. He's a very good talker and a smooth talking bar steward. He has the emotional intelligence and the IQ to wrap you around his finger if he so chooses.
2: His friends and family were clearly worried, but John was determined to go back. Anthony Lloyd, who was regularly going into Syria during that period, as the war correspondent at the Times, explains what John did next.
1: So first of all, he calls Mustafa his fixer, his interpreter, his friend. He calls up Mustafa, and Mustafa at first is incredulous after what happened to John that he should be considering coming back.
4: I told him, John, what's going on? What's happened with you? He says, I'm I'm okay. everything's fine, I'm preparing to, to get back to Syria. I told him, come on, don't do it, you're crazy. And now everyone knows you, because I watch you on the news, everyone knows you here in Syria, don't do it. He says, no, you know me, I don't care about this. I will come to Syria, I will continue my job, and blah, blah, blah. I told him, please, John, don't do this.
2: And Mustafa wasn't the only one who thought it was a bad idea. James Foley, or Jim, an American journalist who would be working with John in Syria if he went back, was also unconvinced.
4: James Foley also, he told him, don't come to Syria. Everyone knows you now, and you are in dangerous.
2: Mustafa was right to be worried. John had done a series of media interviews after that first kidnapping. He'd been all over the press. And after John was released, the commander of the group who'd held him had been killed. And six people, including an NHS doctor, had been arrested in Britain after John's story about the British jihadis involved in his kidnapping had been published
1: the community who kidnapped him will be very aware of the stories that John has written and the accounts of stories he's given on the TV and that that will have caused considerable anger within that jihadist community. So to go back to the same area and try and make contact with the same kind of people is quite risky because the original group that have him are not just some standalone lone wolf conglomerate they are part of a far bigger group and connects. It's like some kind of Lego set. The guy who does you harm might not be that senior in himself, but within Jihadist community, you can guarantee that his second cousin is a commander in the neighbouring town and this, that and the other. And the web of threat that they pose to you is going to be quite acute.
2: That does make it quite different, doesn't it? I mean, we can understand why he'd want to go back. You've done that. I've done that in a way, but actually to go back when you know that you've caused some people to be taken by the authorities, people are going to be angry. People will be looking for you. That's a different level of risk, isn't it?
1: That is a different level of risk. Here's the thing. John had pissed a lot of people off in a very small, tightly-knit community that actually had connections to a far wider community. So the threat to John would have been very different. As it was, it was much more dangerous than that.
2: And yet, John did go back to exactly the same place where he'd been held captive last time, the Syrian town of Sarmadar. Mustafa, his local fixer, was astounded.
4: I remember One of my friends from Sarmada, he called me and he says, hello, Mustafa, how are you? I told him, hello. He says, James and John, they are in my house in Sarmada. I told him, come on, you're kidding me. He says, I swear, God, they are in my home. Come to see your friends.
2: And tell us a bit about Mustafa. I mean, for people who haven't been out working in war zones, how important is the fixer?
1: They are a kind of a guide. They are your fount of local knowledge, and they are good at enabling you to do what you want to do. Also, sort out things like permissions with local commanders. can explain to them, we can drive down this bit of road, but you can't drive down that bit of road because there's an enemy position there, or, or there's six groups here, and they're usually friendly, but not always. It's that kind of detail and depth of local knowledge you want. So a fixture is everything. Mustafa is somebody who John likes a lot.
4: I told him, John, listen to me. I'm so happy to see you alive. Please go back to your family and, like, don't stay here. It's not a good idea to come back here. And you are in Sarmada. And you know, that the first people who kidnapped you in Sarmada. And they are here. He says, I don't care. So, because his mind is like, OK, closed. He don't want to listen to anyone. So... For me, it was like, there is no choices for me. Okay, let's go.
2: Mustafa clearly had serious misgivings about the plan, and he wasn't the only one. John had been joined by two other journalists
1: on this trip. Once John Canley had made the decision to go back to Syria, he went back and worked with James Foley and worked alongside Nicole Tung, a very well-known and established photojournalist. She was also a very close friend of James Foley. She had worked with John and Jim before.
5: I'm Nicole Tung. I'm a freelance mostly covering the Middle East. I've been, I guess, working professionally for about 12 years now, but overseas for about 10. It really started in, during the Arab Spring in Egypt and Libya and then Syria after
1: that. Nicole said afterwards to me that John Cantley did have something to prove to himself By going back to Syria.
5: I think that John didn't want to be seen as a victim, which was probably what compelled him to to go back and, and write about it, confront it in a way that most people wouldn't think about doing. He needed to prove something, not to himself, but, or maybe to himself, but to everyone else. So John Cantley
2: actually wanted to go back and investigate his own kidnapping. He wanted to know more about those foreign jihadists, which does seem extraordinarily risky. What did the rest of the team make of it? I mean, from what Mustafa says, it sounds like James Foley didn't think going back was a great idea. Tell us a bit about him.
1: So James is much more even keeled than John. He has a very gentle demeanour. It sounds like James had some sort of balancing effect on John. It was a very, you know, by this stage, a very established relationship. Hmm. They worked together in Libya. They'd worked together in Syria.
2: Given how, how different their approach to risk was, would people have warned James about working with John Cantley?
1: There were those in the journalistic community. It's quite a small community covering the, the conflict in Syria who would say openly to James, listen, what are you doing travelling with John? John is going to get you into harm's way. John is going to get you hurt. There were those voices. I've spoken to several people who absolutely said that to James. What are you doing working with John? He's trouble. He's going to get you hurt.
2: And James was very close to Nicole Tung. Did she think this was a a good partnership?
1: I don't think Nicole thought this was a good partnership. To me, they looked like
5: total opposites. Jim was more reserved. He didn't really speak when there wasn't much to say. John, on the other hand, was just a very talkative person in general, but very articulate, very intelligent. And I think they got to know each other pretty well in Libya, especially under very kind of risky circumstances. Your friendships are solidified very quickly. And I think they shared that camaraderie between them and took that into Syria. When I was with them for 10 days in Aleppo, I think Jim had a more focused approach towards things, you know, if there wasn't anything going on, he wouldn't sort of waste his time on it. And I think John's trips after his first kidnapping were maybe a little bit more to figure out his place in all of it and and try to, yeah, essentially show that he wasn't scared. There was this pressure of working as a freelancer too. He lost all his equipment in the first kidnapping. I think he needed to financially rebuild himself as well. And I think that he wanted to prove that he, he could reclaim his own story in some way to go back and cover a war business as usual type of thing.
2: But it wasn't business as usual. The threats circling John Cantley were growing by the hour. We'll have more in just a moment. But if you're interested in this series, you might also want to try Stories of Our Times, the daily news podcast that gathers the best journalism and groundbreaking investigations from The Times and The Sunday Times. One story in depth every day. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts.
5: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
6: Hold up. What was that?
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: When he goes back, how is John acting? You know, having been kidnapped the first time, when he goes back, does it make him more cautious? Or has he gone, does he just sort of think from now on he's invincible?
1: John's behaviour on his return was reckless. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I'd love to describe it in some other way, but it was reckless.
4: I remember one time we were in Aleppo, me and James and John.
1: At some point, they see a group of foreign jihadists by a building nearby.
4: We were a, with a Free Syrian Army group. And they are normal people, you know, they are like civilians. But they told us, be careful, don't go to that checkpoint. They are jihadist group and all of them, they are Westerns me and james was really afraid about about this you know i told him john you heard that don't try okay james he was really smart he asked him please don't do any troubles please
1: now at this stage we're talking about autumn 2012 suddenly there are more and more and more foreign jihadists and the rough rule of thumb was as a western journalist you kind of kept on walking by You didn't want to make eye contact. Really, you just walked on by. John did not walk on by.
4: Like, one hour later, we missed Johnny. Where is Johnny? Everyone was looking for Johnny. Then one of these guys, he says, John, he go to that checkpoint. Oh, my gosh. So I told him I'm not going there. It's really dangerous. And maybe he got kidnapped. James Foley was really afraid. And he says, so what we will do
1: with this man? He's like, really crazy. We explained to him, don't go there. John saw a group of foreign artists in Aleppo and then went to make conversation with them without the rest of his team. And he didn't reappear.
4: We went to the checkpoint and there, is a, there was guards and they asked us, what do you want? He says, Western journalist. Can we ask about him, where is he? He says he's inside.
1: So, Mustafa describes getting to a room and there is John there, as he says, pale-faced, surrounded by these foreign jihadists. And he was, like, really shaking. His hand was shaking. His, his face
4: is, like, completely different. And he was, like, really stressed. I watch his face. And do you know what we, they was asking him? Do you know a British Western journalist... He, he escaped from Sarmada.
1: These foreign jihadists who are asking John very intently about this account of some British journalist who had been kidnapped by people they knew. The journalists had then got back home and as a result of his testimony to police that, that, that some of the kidnapped gang had been arrested. Now, oh. it's pretty clear that they suspected the guy that they were telling that to, John was connected to that kidnapping or was indeed John Cantley. So they had heard of of John Cantley, they'd heard of what had happened. Yeah, that story of John's went, you know, around the world. There was a lot of interest in it, not just Mm. interest amongst, you know, newspaper readers, but amongst the jihadists. And Mustafa spoke to me of real anger that John had gone and done that, that John had gone and engaged wantonly with foreign jihadists again. Then John says, it's okay, don't worry.
4: Everything is fine. I control everything. I told him, no, you are not fucking controlling anything. I, I was, like, super angry. And I told him, we have to leave now. If you don't want to leave, I'm leaving alone.
2: It was a close shave. John Cantley had almost been taken captive again. He was clearly shaken by the incident but it didn't stop him trying to engage with foreign jihadis again and again
5: there were two other incidences in which john more or less did the same thing there were foreign jihadists using this building as a base near near the front line where they were fighting and we were trying to approach the front line and we were first brought into this building you know to say hello to people and drink tea that kind of thing and in the next room we were separated you know so Jim John and I and Mustafa were put into one room and in the other room as we were walking in we could see that there were foreign fighters in there and I think John after a minute of sitting down decided he would just skip on over to the next room and try to meet these people and put on this very friendly demeanor and try to get a sense of who they were where they were coming from and it was just to to me and And Jim, we were both saying, what is he doing?
2: The foreign jihadis didn't want to talk, and yet John kept trying to reach out to them.
5: The other incident was also, there was this media centre that was being run by media activists in the rebel-held areas of Aleppo. And behind the media centre, there was also another group of jihadist fighters who belonged to a group that had al-Qaeda links. And same thing. We walk into the building. John sees them and just makes a beeline for them, and is backslapping them, trying to engage them, trying to shake their hands. Um, nobody wants to shake his hand. Uh, you know, just being very brash about it and trying to be funny. And and it was quite scary to watch because I think that we all expected or anticipated something to happen straight away. And both times he got lucky.
2: That's an incredible risk to take. I assume that's not something you would do, just going off on your own with a room full of foreign jihadists. But especially so soon after having been held captive by foreign jihadists.
1: Well, when things go wrong, there's no shortage in the queue of people telling you you did a basic mistake. And certainly when I was kidnapped a couple of years later... There were all sorts of people telling me afterwards, oh, well, you did this, you did that, you're foolish to do that, or, or, or whatever. It was what it was. You know, you make a mistake in war, and it's very easy to make a mistake in war. However, that was... That was reckless. That was reckless, John Kelly.
2: John was taking some extraordinary risks, and in terms of his work, they weren't paying off. The foreign jihadists wouldn't engage with him... And there was a brief lull in the fighting in Aleppo. Having taken such a risk to get there, it was starting to feel like a wasted trip.
5: I think when Aleppo was quiet for those 10 days that we were there, I think both James and John were were feeling a bit restless and that they weren't getting the sort of footage that they had perhaps imagined. You're kind of chasing the pictures
1: The
2: group had to move on
1: to wherever the action was. At that point, Nicole and the group separate.
5: The next morning I left for
1: Istanbul and
5: it was just like a really casual goodbye. It wasn't even goodbye, it was just, I'll see you when you guys come out again in another 10 days. I I remember even just, you know, waving bye to Jim. It wasn't even, it wasn't even like a (laughs) very serious sort of thing. So... They went in into the western area, into Idlib province, and I think this was the stage where John was eager to kind of get back on the story about his previous kidnapping.
1: James and John and Mustafa go off. They're concluding their work on Thanksgiving Day 2012, and they stop at an internet cafe in a small city called Binish, which is in northern Syria, Not only have they got some material to file, but email people and pick up on emails. And they're there in the cafe. And then into the cafe walks a foreign jihadist wearing a beret, a big bearded, you know, obvious foreign jihadist. And John says, hey Che Guevara to him a couple of times.
2: Che Guevara.
1: Hey, Che Guevara, the guy obviously looks, you know, a bit like Che. He's bearded and got a beret on and, and whatnot. And I think John wants to shake his hand. And the guy does not want to shake John's hand.
4: His reaction was really bad. And he knows that he's a Western journalist. And he says, hello, G. Guevara, again. When he talked to him, and he ne- never answered Never. He don't say anything, that guy, you know? And I told him, please, keep silent. And James Foley also, he told him that, please, John, keep silent. And this is
2: John's attempt at just banter.
1: It's John's attempt at engagement. Yeah. Engagement. Now, there are some people who can do that. Maybe John could pull it off some of the time, but he certainly couldn't pull it off in this case. And I think John repeats... Like, hey, come on, man, you know, da da da. He's trying to be over friendly. And this guy, who later people said was recognized as Jihadi John, but I I do not believe that is the case. I think he's just a, from what I can ascertain, he's a foreign fighter, but I don't think he was Jihadi John. He leaves the cafe having given daggers glances to John Cantley and James Foley.
2: I mean, that's pretty alarming, but at least this foreign jihadist has now left the cafe. What happens
1: next? John and James stayed in the cafe. There was some furthermore kind of email exchanges with people they wanted to contact outside the country. But, you know, these are catch-up emails. They're not like, oh, we might have a situation here.
5: They were there, from what I could tell, for about two hours in the cafe. Throughout those two hours, James Foley was exchanging emails with Nicole. He didn't really mention anything about what he was seeing around him, who was there. He was just saying, we're filing right now and we're going to come out when we're done. So, yeah, we were just saying, well, let's meet for dinner tonight.
1: Then at some point, Mustafa has got a taxi driver who's going to pick them up and take them to the Turkish border, which is about 30 miles away. And that's it for the assignment. And then for a while, they're going to rest up in Turkey. They leave Binish, and as they leave, on the road, they suddenly realise that they're being tailed by a silver Hyundai van.
4: John, in that moment, he felt that we are in danger. And directly, he asked the taxi driver, don't stop, don't stop, go, 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 go. I told him, come down, John, what's going on? He says, just go, go, go. And he was, like, looking to the back, you know? And he made me, like, afraid, and also James. He became fast, the driver. And also the van, also they they go faster.
1: They start speeding, the van starts speeding after them. John starts saying to Mustafa, you know, tell the driver not to stop. I cannot be kidnapped again. I cannot be kidnapped again. They opened the
4: door and there was like all of them wearing masks with a clashing cough and they told us like, stop, stop, stop. And John was like telling him, don't stop, don't stop. And he started shouting and he says, I don't want to kidnap again. I remember that. He was asking me to translate to taxi driver, please ask him to to get fast. And I asked the taxi driver, please go fast. And the taxi driver, finally he stopped because the, the van is blocked the car. They blocked the car, and he's stopped.
1: There's a chase, and Mustafa is really plaintive in the way that he describes it. You know, John calling out to him to tell the driver to keep driving because he didn't want to be taken hostage again. But they get cut off by the Hyundai. These guys spring out of it, and they're, they're spread eagle on the floor.
4: I remember maybe four, maybe five members. They was like, get out of, of the van, and they start shouting. Uh, they ask us to put our, our body on the, on the floor, and our hands on uh, our backs, and just calm down, calm down. I was shouting with them. I told them, who are you? What do you want? And they said, just shut up. And they start shooting on the ground with the bullets, you know, with the clashing cough. He says, if you open your mouth again, I will kill you right now. And I then I shout, they are my friends and we are helping these Syrian people. What do you want? He says, just shut up and give me your ID right now. And he says, just go right now with the taxi driver. We don't want you, we need these people.
1: John knew what was coming. Mustafa's account of those moments still makes my hair stand on end now.
2: What happened to Mustafa?
1: They didn't take Mustafa. They just wanted the two foreign journalists.
4: I was wearing scarf. He took my scarf and he gave it to me and he says, tie his hand right now because he was like catching the clashing cough. He don't want to move.
1: As he lay down there, Mustafa was forced to blindfold them with her own scarves at gunpoint. He says,
4: if you don't want to leave, I will kill you right now. Then the taxi driver was shouting with me. He says, come on, leave, leave, they will kill you. I don't know what I have to do. This is the first time I got kidnapped and a lot of people around me with the clashing of shooting a lot of bullets around me. And I was like confused. I'm trying to help my friends. In the same time, trying to, you know, just to understand what's going on, what's happened. So when he asked me to tie John Cantley's hands, yes, um, he, he told me that. Please, Mustafa, help me. I, I couldn't.
2: As John Cantley begged for help, His friend Mustafa had no choice. Surrounded by men with Kalashnikovs shooting at the ground around him, he had to tie their hands and watch as John and James Foley were kidnapped.
1: So Nicole waits. She's expecting to meet them later that day and to have supper in Turkey that night. She waits and waits... The hours go by. They haven't turned up.
5: I was expecting them by about four, if I remember correctly, that that afternoon. And so I was expecting a message to come from, from Jim um, because we'd been in touch and he was sort of giving me updates. Five o'clock rolled around, six o'clock, seven o'clock rolls around. And I knew, you know, something was up that he, he would have contacted me if plans had changed or anything. And he didn't. I tried calling his cell phone, his satellite phone. I tried emailing him, I tried contacting him in every which way that I knew how, uh, none of which was going through. And so finally I just, I called Mustafa and he was just frantic. You know, he was really in a panic. The first thing he said to me is, "I'm, I'm really sorry, Nicole. I tried to help them, but they were taken.
2: As the horrifying news reaches their friends, the desperate search for John and James is now on. Next time on Last Man Standing. On the trail of the two journalists, a significant clue is delivered by the most unlikely of sources, a former member of the Islamic State.
5: And there they were when I came in, like just next to each other wearing Islamic clothes. I didn't know who who they were. To me, they were just white people. The first white people I've seen in months. You start to play games. And then you start to have conversations like, if I get out, I'm going to contact your family. That was actually their demand instead of me because they realized I was getting uh, quicker than they was.
2: Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent at The Times. It's co-presented and executive produced by me, Manveen Rana. The lead producer is Poppy Damon. The producer is Matt Wareham. Story editing is by Joe Sykes at Samizdat Audio. Sound design and original music is by Tom Birchall. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford.